Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch. I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. And today we want to return to the controversy over the militarization of American policing. Uh, the images that came out of Ferguson a few weeks ago of the police, some of the police dressed in uh, battle dress uniforms, uh, pointing automatic weapons at people, uh, shooting tear gas rounds into the yards of residents. It, it came as a shock to many people. And in response, President Obama has ordered a review of all of the federal programs to facilitate the flow of military weapons and equipment uh, to local police departments and SWAT teams. And there was a Senate hearing uh, earlier this week on this subject. I was glad to see uh, recently that a New York Times reporter acknowledged that uh, the Cato Institute has often been a lonely voice uh, on this subject where we've been trying to draw the attention of policymakers uh, to this militarization trend and what we think is the blurring of the lines between the military mission uh, and, the, and the police mission. Uh, when our military units are called into action, uh, you know, their mission is to find the enemy fighters and, and kill them. That's the essence of the military mission. Uh, there's no constitutional rights on the battlefield. Uh, the policing mission is very different. Uh, we want the police to avoid the use of force and in those situations where it's necessary, to use the absolute minimum amount of force that might be necessary to bring a suspect into a court of law where things can be sorted out without further violence. We called attention to this trend in 1999 when we first published a paper called Warrior Cops. And then a few years later in 2006, we published a paper called Overkill by Radley Balco. And at that time, we also added a new page to our website that we call the Raid Map. Uh, which shows how often SWAT teams sometimes raid the wrong home or the wrong apartment and instances where people are, are shot and killed. Uh, we have an excellent panel of speakers for you today uh, that are going to help us to better understand uh, this controversy and subject. Our, our format's going to be simple and straightforward. Each speaker is going to talk for about 10 or 15 minutes on what they think is important, what needs to be stressed, maybe some things that haven't been uh, emphasized enough in some of the media reports over the past few weeks. Um, when they are done, we're going to take your questions uh, for a few minutes before we adjourn for a luncheon upstairs where we can continue the conversation. Before I introduce our first speaker, I would ask those of you, uh, if you just take a moment now to double check and make sure that your cell phones have been silenced uh, as a courtesy uh, to our speakers. Thank you. Our first speaker today is Shai Calvo. Uh, Mr. Calvo is the mayor of Berwyn Heights, a community that's not very far from here over in Prince George's County. He's been the mayor there for close to 10 years now, and, uh, but he's with us today because in the summer of 2008, he was the victim of a violent no-knock uh, SWAT raid. Uh, the police uh, came to his home, thought he was part of a smuggling operation, uh, but within a few hours they discovered that they were mistaken and, and that he was a totally innocent person. Uh, and yet the commander, even after this came to light, kind of quite arrogantly uh, refused to apologize for what happened during the raid. 
I'm going to let him uh, tell the story, but uh, let me just say that in the years since that happened, uh, Mayor Calvo has worked very hard to make sure that other families do not have to go through the ordeal uh, that his family suffered. And he does that by talking in forums like the one we are in today about his experience. And he's also given a lot of his time trying to change the laws and policies uh, in the state of Maryland, testifying before the legislature there and so forth. So please welcome our first speaker, Mayor Shai Calvo. Thank you, Tim. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back at Cato. And, and um, although the circumstances of these conversations never result from, um, you know, um, anything other than tragedy. And so some part, part, you know, a big part of me hopes that conversations like this will help uh, minimize that um, future <coughs> tragedies. Uh, so I'm just going to take a few minutes and I want to do three basic things. Uh, one, I want to give a little bit of a framework um, about how government works. And I want to put the militarization within that framework, um, which I think might be helpful. Two, I want to share my personal journey to this story, which is, is probably somewhat unusual. And three, I want to end with uh, basically sharing a few considerations, maybe conclusions that I've learned from my six years of dealing with police militarization. And hopefully we have a chance to have a robust uh, conversation in the Q&A section at the end. So I think we all like to believe that, you know, the government we have is sort of well planned out, that, that someone sat down and put it together in a way that, um, you know, is designed for the situations at hand. But I think we, we need to start with an understanding that that's really not the way it works. It's kind of organic. It evolves over time. The great mass of things that government does doesn't get much attention from the people elected um, through the democratic process. I mean, the trash gets picked up, driver's license get issued, roads get repaved. Um, you know, government happens. It's not really a change agent. It's there ideally to add value to the quality of life. Of, of the people who, who elected and, and benefit from it. And I'm someone who really believes in government, and I, I'm fortunate to lead a small town where I think government does add value to the quality of life of, of the residents that, that, that have elected me now six times. Um, but the great mass of government goes on, and it's the inertia is probably the most powerful force. So whenever you look to start changing something, you almost start with the fact that you're bringing with it all the baggage from before, all the forces that drive it forward. And it's, it's, and I would sort of liken it to uh, maybe it's a geological um, uh, 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 example, but you know the surface of the Earth, sure, it's shaped by you know volcanic eruptions and tectonic you know, tectonic shifts, but mostly it's the 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 steady and slow run of water that shapes it, and I think government's that way too. That the simple force day in and day out sort of carves it into what it is. It shapes it into what it is, and so. We often get to think about policy and think tanks are wonderful in doing that, but I think we need to understand that government is much more driven by the people who are there every day. The interest groups that show up, that the general public may care a little, but it's the people who care a lot who have a self-interest in the result that often drive decisions. That's you know, uh, police chiefs, police unions, uh, you know, the, the fiscal policies that shape it. So while I appreciate the conversations about a lot of these issues, do understand that government is a lot more complicated than maybe we saw in Schoolhouse Rock. So getting to sort of my story, though, so this is really a topic that I come to involuntarily. Um, I'm a policy wonk, always have been, but I did never dealt with police issues. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that I didn't come to this issue because I read, you know, Radley Balco's report, Overkill, and 
got an issue and decided to take it up as a small town mayor, um, this really, the issue really came to my front door, literally. Um, it was in the summer of, uh, of 2008 when I just got home from a community event and was headed or to, from my day job and was headed to a community event when a series of events uh, sort of alerted to me the fact that um, you know, something was terribly wrong. Uh, it began with my mother-in-law yelling out to me and a frightened scream as I was changing my clothes saying, Shy, I, I, I think it's SWAT. Um, I then looked out the window to see that a SWAT team had surrounded my house, followed immediately by an explosion and gunfire. Um, and uh, it was a horrific event that I won't go into the details of, but um, basically what happened is a drug trafficker had stolen my wife's identity and used it to ship a box of drugs from Arizona to Maryland. Um, the drugs should have been intercepted by a FedEx driver who was on the take and, and would have, you know, had, you know, you know, on a normal occasion, we just sent the drugs into the, you know, the, the state of Maryland, but the police intercepted that box. It was called a parcel interdiction. They got drugs, you know, they got some dogs to sniff it. They, they repackaged it. They, they delivered it to my house and then they sent a SWAT team in to receive it. Um, and that led to um, a, horrific, a horrific event that my family was terrorized. Our two beloved black Labradors were shot and killed. And, uh, my family and me became one of those inter, you know, kind of international stories that cable likes to chew on for, for a couple of news cycles. Um, but since then, you know, there's, you know, it's one of those things. I, I love being a small town mayor. I've done a lot of things of which I'm really, really proud. Um, but this will always be the thing that I'm known for. The, the, the picture that made the papers those days will probably be the one that, you know, runs in my obituary. But everyone always talks about the dogs. They always talk about why, you know, the dogs that were shot. And I love those dogs. They were my, you know, that for me is a tragedy that I dealt with personally. But as I started to look into the issue of, of the incident, because that's who I am and I wanted to understand it, the issue wasn't why were my dogs shot and killed. The issue for me was always, why was a SWAT team at my house? Why was it there in the first place? Why as a small town mayor did the police deploy a paramilitary unit to my doorstep without doing the basic investigation that, that they would have even known I was the mayor of my town. It was a county police you know, SWAT team. I, I'm the mayor of a town that does not have a SWAT team. But how did it happen like that? How did we get there? And so in the, in the, in the weeks and months that followed, those questions I think were being asked by me and a whole lot of other people for the first time because the incident drew so much attention. And over the course of you know, a legislative process and over the course of a, a, um, a lawsuit, which I eventually settled with Prince George's County that lasted about three and a half years, I am now an expert in what happened on my house that day. I know where every member who was there went to high school. We did 150 hours of depositions. And what we learned is actually, for me, the alarming part about this, that somehow, somewhere along the way, Prince George's County um, developed a policy where all search warrants were served with SWAT teams. SWAT teams. So if they had a search warrant, they sent a SWAT team in to start the investigation. I learned a lot about their, their training practices. Um, I learned a lot about um, how common these were. It was in Prince George's County the year before um, our incident had deployed SWAT teams 700 times. The unit that came to my house, they did this. This is what they did, parcel and addiction. They did it three times a week, 150, you know, 150 times a year. It was truly business as usual. It wasn't unusual. The unusual thing is that someone paid attention. 
And so I worked with lawmakers in 2009 to pass what was then the first law of its kind, uh, which was a, simply an oversight mechanism to shine the light on SWAT teams, because I wanted to understand how often is this happening. And what we learned is in the state of Maryland, somewhere between 36 and 40 law enforcement agencies every year um, deploy SWAT teams, a total of about 1,650 times, give or take, any given year. When they deploy, I think 91% of the time it's for search warrants. Um, it wasn't for what we thought SWAT teams were developed for. So we always thought SWAT teams were about, you know, the Watts, Watts riots and, and barricade situations about, uh, um, you know, uh, emergencies, you know, kind of these high risk situations, bank robberies, barricades, hostage situations. That's not true at all. Routinely, they are now used for, for, for search warrants. When they deploy, it doesn't matter whether it's a no-knock raid or knock and announce. 70% of the time, they force entry. They actually force entry more than they arrest people. They kick in the door, which may be a great policy for Home Depot, but it doesn't work well to serve our public policy. It's incredibly inefficient um, in so many cases. And this, the teams involved, most of them come from little agencies who don't have adequate training. It's not the full-time job of the officers. And it's just this proliferation that we don't think really, I don't think I had any idea as a, then a three-time elected official that it was used that way. And so that began a process of sort of looking at what was underlying that decision? And you know, we were able to move forward with a lawsuit. And in the end, we settled a case that included some meaningful reforms and really got to institute best practices. Um, and, but even today, as we see tanks on the streets in, in, in you know, Ferguson, Missouri, I don't think it's a surprise. Because what I've also learned is that this didn't come about accidentally. It wasn't some day that some politician woke up and said, we have to do more SWAT team deployments. What happened was a slow process over a 40-year period of time, principally drawn to the war on drugs and, and federal largesse. Because I can tell you in the 1970s, yes, SWAT teams were established by law, law, law enforcement agencies, but they weren't going to spend precious property taxes on SWAT teams. That wasn't their goal. These were for unusual situations, not the norm. But what happened in the 1980s with the war on drugs is suddenly um, the federal government began to really push that metaphor to reality. That's when, you know, although it didn't begin then, that's when the surplus in the military equipment started to happen. We changed the way over time that we do asset forfeiture laws, which really changed the nature of policing in many cases. We started, the federal government really increased its spending on local law enforcement, which in many cases, as a small town mayor, I like, but when they're funding multi-jurisdictional efforts that are essentially SWAT teams, they're doing all this essentially without any oversight. And local law enforcement, you know, local elected officials like myself, these are like federal grants. So they don't get the same oversight they would get if it was my tax dollars going to it. So what we have today is something that's evolved over time. Again, not intentionally, but is something that uh, has happened slowly, honestly, under the radar. And it only pops up every few years, every six months when some tragedy happens and suddenly the media starts paying attention. But it is happening every day. So ending my few minutes with uh, some just general observations, there's a few things I do want to share that hopefully will be fodder for future you know, conversation here. One, I think it's actually really important that when we talk about these issues, we don't focus narrowly on the individual or the individual incident. I find that in police departments that have real troubles, the real problems are systemic. They're cultural. It's easy to focus on the, the officer who pulled the trigger. But I think it's much more important to focus on who hired that officer, who failed to train that officer, and who failed to lead that officer appropriately. 
What are the policies and practices that are in place? I think it's wonderful that the U.S. Justice Department is doing a patterns and practice investigation of Ferguson, Missouri's police department, but it shouldn't take the U.S. Department of Justice to do that. Why aren't states looking at these individual incidents more often? And secondly, I think equally important, we as citizens, but I'll say this, me and my colleagues as local elected officials, we need to place a greater priority and emphasis on oversight. And as a small town mayor, I can tell you, it was very hard to come into office green, I was 33 at the time, and argue with a police chief. Like he had 25 years of experience, I was just some guy who got elected. But at the end of the day, he was a police chief under authority that I gave him and under appropriations that I passed. And his badge was the authority of the citizens of my town. And I had a duty to stand up to him and disagree with him and demand that he be accountable for the decisions he make. But too often when you have instances of police abuse or real questions, the elected officials stick their heads in the ground and they allow the police to circle the wagons and admit no wrongdoing. And the problem is when you admit no wrongdoing, you learn nothing from it. You just continue business as usual. And the truth is, mistakes will happen in any form of activity. But when you give a guy a badge and a gun, you have to couple that with oversight. And that doesn't mean that every police officer who makes mistakes should be sued or punished. Really what we need is oversight panels that can look broadly at trends and identify problems and demand systemic solutions. Because you can fire a bad officer and sometimes that needs to happen. But if another bad officer fills his place, it doesn't fix anything. And more so, a good person in a bad system will give you bad results. And what I've generally found is that the system matters more than anything else. And we have to stand up on the oversight, because oversight isn't the sexy part. It's not setting up a new program you can put your name on. But when it comes to doing the basic elements of government, or the things that people actually rely on and care about, oversight is essential. And sort of my final point with this is, I think it's also important to understand how dynamic public policy is. Just like no one stood up and said, we need to use SWAT teams for every search warrant, no one stood up and said, we need to militarize the police. These things happen slowly. So you can look in isolation at you know, the, the surplus you know, defense, um, defense equipment or military equipment to local law enforcement officers. And I think that's a good thing. I think there are reforms to that program, if not outright elimination, that I think is a conversation worth having. I will also say, on the same degree, I have real issues the way asset forfeiture laws work in this country, but I'm not opposed to asset forfeiture laws. I'm opposed to asset forfeiture laws without accountability and oversight. That's true of all of this, because you know sometimes, I mean, ill-gotten gains, if you're a drug ring and you have assets, I don't, you know, I think the this, this state coming in and stuff, but it has to be a process for that. But with how it's happening today, one, there's no oversight. I mean, a lot of these grants, all they want to know is how many people did you arrest and how many drugs did you seize? The federal government throws in this policy, mixes up the system, but doesn't do anything to make sure that it's working right. They have no idea where their equipment went and how it's being used. But the point is, no one especially had any idea how all these programs would work together. How these programs that sort of push a war on drug mentality, and I'm more worried about the mindset than the actual equipment, to be honest with you, because the equipment is only one piece of it. But when the police start thinking like soldiers and not about you know, community police that are about to protect and serve, that's when we have the bigger problem. But all of this doesn't happen in a vacuum. You have to think about the interplay between how um, you know, the politics interferes with all of this. 
I mean, it's it's one thing to demand accountability, but when citizens rise up and complain, but you know, if the mayor cares more about the police union's endorsement at election time than about real justice, you have a deeper problem. And too often the vested interests, which are real forces, we should, I'm not blaming police unions, I'm blaming the law, elected officials who lay down simply because they want to put that that sticker on their campaign sign. So it's, it's, it's understanding that you can't create public policy in a vacuum. These things are, you know, it's not a silo. In real life, it comes together and it gets really, really messy. So I'm a, I love talking about reforms. I love talking about new ideas, but you have to respect unintended consequences and you have to constantly come back to those things. You can't wake up 40 years later and say, oh, we've actually created something that doesn't match our ideals. And we're not gonna get there overnight. We can't have this conversation today and to pretend that next month everything will be fine. Let's pass a federal law. That'll solve everything. It doesn't work that way. It requires attention to the issue and demanding that basic government work better. And actually what you find, and I say this in my town, when you do the basic stuff right, that's the key to restoring faith in government. And I think, if nothing else, the thing that we should start with is law enforcement, because it's central to our communities. And if we're going to restore that faith, there's a lot that can be done to, to make that work better. And maybe that positive goodwill will actually you know, lead to some other levels of government. So with that, it's a pleasure. I look forward to hearing the other panelists. Thank you, Shai. Our second speaker today is Mark Lomax. Mr. Lomax is the executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association. Uh, this association represents more than 1,500 SWAT teams in the United States and Canada. And the goal of the association is to improve public safety through training, education, and tactical excellence. Before his current position, Mr. Lomax served with the Pennsylvania State Police for 27 years, retiring as a major. He holds master's degrees in higher education and business administration. He's also a graduate of the FBI National Academy. So please welcome Mark Lomax. Thank you, Tim. Good afternoon, everyone. And I'd like to thank Tim and the Cato Institute for inviting me to today's forum. Um, this past Tuesday, I had the privilege to testify before the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and government affairs in their hearing on oversight of federal programs for equipping state and local law enforcement. I testified that the American law enforcement officer recognizes probably more accurately than most that they are not in conflict with the citizens they serve. To the contrary, the brave men and women of this profession willingly place themselves between, between danger and the public every day and that great personal sacrifice to themselves and their families. Their children go to school with your children, their families go to church with your families, and they too are citizens of the community, communities for which they have been solemnly responsible to protect. They're often asked for a little, for a little beyond the appropriate level of training, equipment, and support necessary to accomplish their mission. The National Tactical Officer Association believes that those law enforcement officers that are asked to conduct the most difficult and dangerous missions deserve the appropriate level of training and equipment to ensure as much as possible their success and safety. The Department of Defense 1033 program and the Department of Homeland Security grant funding 
has supported that effort by providing much needed safety and emergency response equipment. The National Defense Authorization Act of fiscal year 1997 authorized the Defense Logistic Agency, specifically the Law Enforcement Support Office, LESL, to administer the 1033 program and allows for the office to transfer excess Department of Defense property to law enforcement agencies across the United States and its territories. Law enforcement agencies in the United States have taken advantage of this program from its inception, but certainly at a greater frequency after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. The program has directly benefited recipient agencies and the citizens they serve, as well as creating a number of unique challenges along the way. After September 11, 2001, first responder agencies across the country willingly volunteer to collaborate with their federal partners in building a robust and capable homeland security system at all levels. At the time, the most progressive law enforcement agencies in the United States had a proven capability in prevention, investigation, and enforcement aspect of crime fighting. The most significant challenge associated with this transition for local law enforcement was evaluating the potential threats associated with terrorism occurring within their community and determining the appropriate level of involvement for each agency. The threat of terrorist attack in our country has not diminished in the last decade and may, in fact, have become a more serious threat as we see what's going on throughout our world today. Although the United States has seen a, a decrease in overall crime <clears throat> over the last decade, local law enforcement agencies have been challenged with increasing threats such as violent gangs, extremists, group activities, border security issues, and active shooter scenarios in schools businesses, and other public venues. Also added to this shift, the 2004-2005 Atlantic hurricane season resulted in 15 named storms impacting the United States, most notably Hurricane Katrina. As a result, first responder agencies from around the country reassessed their role and responsibilities associated with natural disaster response operations specifically rescue, evacu evacuation, sheltering, and security operations. The 1033 program has allowed local agencies to acquire heavy-duty, high-wheeled vehicles, forklifts, generators, and vehicles that improve operational capabilities and responder safety. <clears throat> Some examples I'm going to cite uh, are a benefit of this program. Seminole County, Florida, the Seminole County Sheriff's Office acquired property through the 1033 program. Initial acquisitions of equipment included three helicopters. As a result, <clears throat> the Sheriff's Office was able to implement an aviation capability that it did not have prior to that. The use of those aircraft would provide approximately 9,533 <clears throat> flight hours of airborne law enforcement and rescue missions to include 1,184 suspect apprehension, 323 EMS patient transports, and 8,260 patrol assists between 1996 and 2009, uh, when they were ultimately replaced with commercial aircraft. Additionally, the uh, Sheriff's Office acquired heavy, numerous heavy-duty high-wheeled trucks and forklifts 
that were used extensively during the response to Hurricanes Charlie, Francis, and Jean in 2004 and the floods of Tropical Storm Faye in 2007. Those vehicles were utilized to deliver sandbag, food, water, and patrol flooded residential areas and evacuated stranded residents. These heavy-duty trucks were used as a means by which deputies with chainsaws were able to cut, drag, and clear extremely large trees that had blocked many roadways and access points well ahead of other type of available public or county resources. The 1033 program also provided surplus military generators that have been used to power critical infrastructure post-storm, such as shelters, fuel pumps, sanitation lift stations, and traffic control lighting systems. Volusia County, Florida. <clears throat> March 25, 2009, Officer El Shami was shot by a homicide suspect. Florida Region 5 SWAT responded when the subject barricaded himself in his home equipped with night vision, body armor, gas masks, and numerous handguns and rifles, including a 50 caliber rifle. Two armored rescue vehicles were utilized to approach the structure, deploy chemical agents and tactical robots and negotiate from a PA system. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, April 4th, 2009. Three Pittsburgh Police Bureau officers were shot and killed, responding to a domestic disturbance call. Another officer was shot and seriously injured, attempted to assist the down officers. During the ensuing barricade, the suspect, who was armed with an AK-47 assault rifle, exchanged gunfire with the police. Over 3,500 rounds of ammunition were fired. A DHS-funded armored rescue vehicle was used to attempt to rescue the officer and was struck by over 200 rounds. And lastly, Boston, Massachusetts, 2013, Boston PD, and multiple other law enforcement agencies utilized armored rescue vehicles in the apprehension of the surviving suspect. Military-grade thermal imaging was used to safely confirm the suspect's location during the arrest. These examples demonstrate the necessity and application of emergency response equipment, heavy-duty vehicles, and armored rescue vehicles. The threat that firearms pose to law enforcement officers and the public during violent critical incidents have proven that rescue, armored rescue vehicles have become essential as individually worn body armor or helmets in saving lives. Most tactical commanders utilize these resources judiciously and are sensitive to both their real and perceived appearance. With its paradigm shifts comes the need for training, standardization, and collaboration. It is not uncommon for agencies to take receipt of government equipment and receive little to no training on how to utilize it, when to deploy it, or equally as important, when not to deploy it. Prior to obtaining equipment from the 1033 program or purchasing commercially utilizing DHS grant money, agencies are not mandated to um, demonstrate training levels for the use of that equipment. It is incumbent upon the agency to obtain necessary training based upon regulatory or voluntary compliance standards associated with such equipment. Another challenge, that, another challenge is that there are not enough specialized law enforcement teams developed 
specifically mobile field force teams in every jurisdiction around the country. Consequently, when a law enforcement administrator is faced with a civil disorder event, they're often deployed only the only resource they have immediate access to, their SWAT teams. It is important to note that approximately 87% of law enforcement agencies in the United States have fewer than 50 officers. With the exception of large metropolitan cities or jurisdictions that have had prior civil disorder events, most agencies have not invested in a mobile field force capability. There is also a general lack of training regarding civil disorder events for tactical commanders, planners, public information officers, and first-line supervisors. The NTOA published the NTOA standards, SWAT standards, in 2011. It outlines the most basic requirements for SWAT teams in terms of operational capabilities, training management, policy development, operational planning, and multi-jurisdictional response. The standard has, the standard is voluntary, uh, and to many law enforcement leaders is viewed as an unfunded mandate and choose to ignore them or not strive to reach the full compliance in all categories. It's the NTOA's position, though, that when an agency makes a decision to develop a SWAT capability, it should also make the investment in training, equipment, and best practices that are required to support such an effort. The NTOA also recognizes that there is still much work to be done in terms of standardizing law enforcement equipment response during critical incidents, namely civil disorder events. Despite efforts made by law enforcement professionals to improve levels of training and standardization through the equation, through the, the equation would not be solved without the collaboration from other stakeholders, such as elected government officials at all levels, the media, community leaders, and the public. It is incumbent upon every law enforcement agency to actively engage these groups in conversation and educate them on law enforcement responsibilities and limitations, and as well as to familiarize them with the equipment they utilize and why. So in closing, I thank you. Uh, I look forward to the opportunity for fellow um, panelists to discuss and take any of your questions you may have. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Our third speaker today is David Kopel. Dave is the research director at the Independence Institute in Golden, Colorado. He's also an associate policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. Uh, he is a prolific writer, uh, 14 books, 80 scholarly articles, uh, and hundreds of newspaper and magazine articles. And he writes on constitutional law, criminal justice, civil rights, firearms policy, and, and many other subjects. He's frequently called upon to testify before Congress and state legislative committees, and his work has been cited by many state and federal courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he's been a longtime critic of the militarization, militarization trend of policing. I recall we had him here at Cato in the late 1990s when his book No More Wacos was published. And so more than 15 years ago, he was pointing out that American policing was becoming too militarized and too violent. Please welcome David Kopel. Thank you, Jim. And also, I'd like to thank the, the National Tactical Officers Association for the work they're doing 
in promoting higher standards of, of police training. I, I think re regardless of how one resolves uh, some of the questions we're talking about today, improved training is critically important. I've represented other police training organizations, International Law Enforcement Edu Educators and Trainers Association, International Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors, twice in the Supreme Court and in other courts. And there is simply no doubt that while better training or, or training at all doesn't solve every problem, it certainly reduces a lot of them. And it is absolutely something that, that deserves support across the spectrum. This country started in part because of a reaction against the militarization of law enforcement. Back in the olden days of colonial New England, there were people who smuggled goods into the United States, especially from the Caribbean, without paying the required customs duties. They were imposed by the British Crown. The response was, in the 1760s and the 1770s, was to send the Redcoats, the army, into commercial warehouses and other uh, the uh, offices of, of merchants to search them for smuggled goods without uh, a search warrant describing anything in particularity. These were the general writs of assistance uh, that were so infamous, uh, which James Otis argued against in court and which eventually led to the creation of our Fourth Amendment requiring that search warrants describe with particularity uh, what is to be searched for and where. And even then, even in those days, which where this action helped precipitate a war of independence, even then, the Redcoats rarely went into houses to conduct uh, searches without, uh, without warrants or to, for militarized law enforcement. A notable exception to that occurred at the towns of Lexington and Concord on the morning of April 19th, 1775, when uh, General Gage sent out the Redcoats to seize American arms and conducted house-to-house -house searches. I suppose he would euphemize that today as a, uh, a gun safety program. Uh, <laughs> and that set of house-to-house -house searches uh, for alleged contraband led to a political dispute turning into an actual war of independence. The independent United States looked to, in part, its English, the rights of Englishmen and the traditional practices of English liberty in setting up their new country. And one of the trends that was already going on in the United States and then became quite strong as the new country developed was to return to the traditional English model of law enforcement, not by the army, not by the redcoats, but by the, the people and their leaders. The oldest civil office in the English-speaking world is the office of king. Of course, we don't have kings in the United States, but we do have people who hold the second oldest office in the English-speaking world, and that is the office of sheriff. It can be traced back at least to the time of Alfred the Great in the 700s in England. And the sheriff's duty, among others, was to keep the peace, to be a peace officer. 
The sheriff had the power, and sheriffs still do in the United States, of summoning the posse comitatus, literally the power of the county, to require the assistance of able-bodied citizens to help with the enforcement by the law and with arms, if necessary. But in, as with so many things in the United States, the existence of slavery perverted something which had been popular, well understood, and widely accepted. After the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in the 1850s, in 1850, to greatly reinforce, uh, augment uh, law enforcement against federal action against uh, fugitive slaves in the North, the federal government had a lot of trouble getting cooperation from local law enforcement and the local sheriff or other official in Wisconsin, say, was not too keen on hunting down fugitive slaves nor on summoning the posse comitatus to do so. So federal marshals began to attempt to summon U.S. citizens into the federal posse comitatus to engage in slave hunts rather than to engage in the traditional posse comitatus activities of protecting the, the public from dangerous individuals or helping in other widely popular ways. And eventually this led to federal militarization. And what would happen is you have a federal marshal on a slave hunt call the federal, local federal army base into action to purportedly serve as the posse comitatus to hunt for the fugitive slave. This was a flagrant violation of the longstanding American principle of the separation of civil and military power and of the principle that the military power is not to be used to enforce the civil law. And so a legal fiction was adopted that all these sold U.S. Army soldiers who are going out on the slave hunt, oh, they're not really in their role as soldiers. They're just there as, as citizen volunteers. Finally, in 1878, Congress passed the Posse Comitatus Act, which says that it is illegal to use the military, the Army, as a Posse Comitatus, and expresses the principle that military has, is not the use of the military, there are many appropriate uses of the military, but the enforcement of civil law in the United States is not one of them. The trend away from the uh, settlement recognized by the Posse Comitatus Act was in a significant way started by Daryl Gates, who was the police chief of Los Angeles, and in the 1960s uh, thought up the idea for something he called the wanted to call the Special Weapons Attack Team. Uh, his PR people, I think, uh, persuaded him uh, to change what that SWAT set of initials stood for, and in some places, uh, such as New York City or some Connecticut jurisdictions, it is now euphemized as emergency services, as in there's, we think you're uh, growing some marijuana plants in your basement, and so we're going to provide you emergency services by breaking your door <laughs> down and uh, killing your dogs and throwing flashbang grenades all over the place and holding you at gunpoint. Uh, although if it turns out that the reason we came to your house was because, and this has happened plenty of times, we arrested a drunk 
and told him we'd let him go if he gave us the address of a drug dealer. And because he's an alcoholic and a drunk, he's not really that careful about uh, correct addresses. So he thought he knew a drug dealer, but he gave the wrong address and we ended up at your house. Oh, well, uh, sorry. Sometimes. I'd say that the, the well-trained SWAT teams would say sorry, and the well-trained SWAT teams would probably be working in conjunction with well-trained regular patrol officers who would do a better job of investigating before uh, invoking a SWAT team to ser serve a warrant on uh, less information. But well-trained is not always the same as big and small. A minister in Brooklyn, uh, Reverend As Asseline Williams, 70-year-old substance abuse counselor, died of a heart attack during a SWAT raid in precisely the circumstances I've described, where somebody who was a he was counseling uh, got picked up by the police and the guy was sufficiently addled that he gave the gave him the Reverend Williams address and Reverend Williams died uh, of a heart attack during the, the SWAT raid. Of course, mistakes are going to happen in anything the government does, including all the proper things the government does, which certainly includes law enforcement and policing. And as we've heard, good practices and good training are things that help reduce mistakes and accidents. On the very simplest level, every law enforcement officer is properly taught about firearms and using a, a sidearm for self-defense is told that when you're drawing the gun, you keep, your, as, as everybody else uh, should know as well for gun safety, when you're drawing the gun, you keep your finger off the trigger until you're on the target. You don't put your finger on the trigger as you're drawing it because that might result in a premature discharge. You're drawing it because presumably somebody's life is in danger or it's at a critical situation and in which fine motor skills generally degrade. So you wait till you're on the target till you put the finger on the trigger and if you do it properly, there's no slowdown in being able to get off that first uh, essential defensive shot. Our broader issue here is the lack of adherence to good policies and practices for which the end result has been violation of people's Fourth Amendment rights to be free from unreasonable and secure in their persons and papers and property from unreasonable search and seizures and from their Fifth Amendment right to life and enjoyment of their property in the first place. That's the consequence and it's a violation of course of those important parts of the Bill of Rights but the cause goes back fundamentally to the violation of Article I of the United States Constitution. And it's the, these Bill of Rights violations which come at the end. The pervasive violation of Article I is that Article I sets up a national government of enumerated powers to do some very important things that was agreed on in the debates. A uniform code of bankruptcy, the regulation of interstate commerce, to provide for the national defense with an army and, and a navy, the post offices, so, so many important things that should be done by a national government and too often are not done very well these days because the national government now does so many things which the Constitution never authorized. And one thing every legal commentator agreed, pro and con, during the ratification debates and for a very long time after was that the federal government was not granted the police power. The police power is the power of state and local governments to regulate for health and safety and general law enforcement. And the federal government never got that. And that was the fact that it didn't was critical 
to the enactment of the Constitution of the United States. Not even Alexander Hamilton would have supported a Constitution that, that provided a general police power to the federal government. And yet, in practice, we have, through loophole, through treating the Interstate Commerce Clause as the clause that relates to any th to things that are not interstate and to things that are not commerce, uh, created a general police power, and also, in effect, through violation of the spending powers granted to Congress in Article I, where it is now, by Supreme Court decision, believed that Congress has the power not only to spend money for things that the Constitution authorizes the national government to do, but to spend money for anything else it wants, even if that activity is not part of one of the enumerated powers of the federal government. So what are some potential solutions here? It is pervasive. Equipment is part of the problem, but certainly probably not the most important part. I would suspect that most people who's, uh, who are victimized by improper, no-knock, violent raids, and that would be not only people who were innocent, who were, who were innocent because they were just misidentified, but also people who are guilty but would have been perfectly cooperative uh, with a peacefully served search warrant. Uh, they might say, well, it was too bad that they pointed a machine gun at me or shot my dog with a machine gun. But really, if they'd had an old-fashioned 38 police special revolver and those same activities that occurred, that would probably, for most of those people, feel uh, at least 99% as bad. So the equipment is not the, not the most important issue here. One core problem is the massive loopholes have been created in the Posse Comitatus Act so that the National Guard uh, is now frequently used in law enforcement. There is a drug, drug war loophole. Uh, created in 1981 and then broadened in 1988 for the Posse Comitatus Act, it would be sensible to, A, repeal those loopholes entirely, and then to address the lack of enforcement of the Posse Comitatus Act, which currently is, can only be enforced by a federal prosecutor bringing criminal charges, which is not very likely. Evidence seized in violation of the Posse Comitatus Act ought to be prohibited from use in court. And victims of actions taken in violation of the Posse Comitatus Act ought to be able to bring civil lawsuits in court. Forfeiture laws are not only too often unfair in allowing the seizure of property for people who have never been proven guilty of a crime, but the federal government has horribly abetted violation of fairness in forfeiture laws. For example, in Colorado, the legislature, partly thanks to the actions of my father, who served for 22 years as a state representative, passed a good forfeiture reform law. Not a perfect one, but a, a strong one that, that significantly improved due process. But then the federal government comes in and says, oh, local law enforcement, you're doing a forfeiture? Oh, but yeah, you, you got all these problems of state law. I tell you, we'll take over the forfeiture. We'll adopt it. We'll call it a federal one, and then we will give you back two-thirds of the revenue we get from that. That is a direct assault on the ability of the people of Colorado to govern themselves and to set the rules for how their public servants in law enforcement will conduct themselves. And the same problem happens with grants all over the place. When you have a grant from the Department of Defense or wherever that just goes to local law enforcement, 
it bypasses the ability of the people who are, ought to be supervising that to make the decisions and decide if that equipment is appropriate or not. More broadly, our federal government, by the way, is broke. It's spending money, it's printing money, but it is not, its outflow and income are drastically different. So there is not, in fact, any federal surplus of anything to spend on giving money to the unconstitutional purpose of participating in local law enforcement. An important local reform is to take that principle we have in the United States that sheriffs are elected. Now, sheriffs are not perfect. There are some who have abused their powers, but the ability to directly elect local law enforcement is important. And I can certainly tell you in Colorado, and with no disrespect to the many good law enforcement officers who exist in our police, municipal police departments, I've heard a lot of people say that, boy, when I'm in a traffic stop, the sheriff's deputies are sure a lot nicer to me than are the local uh, police officers. And I don't think it's that necessarily the sheriff's deputies are inherently nicer people, but the fact is that there's that immediate accountability of the elected sheriff does make a difference. You know, the people of Denver can elect their own auditor. Uh, it would seem legitimate that they'd be allowed to elect their, elect their own police chief as well. Legislatively, there are some important reforms coming up in Congress. There have been proposals by Je Representative Justin Amash to uh, repeal the, the 1033 military equipment provision. Chris Stewart, also uh, a Republican of Utah, has a good idea because this is not just, this is not obviously not solely a local law. The problem is not only local law enforcement getting federal uh, military stuff. It's also often how the federal government itself behaves. And uh, Representative Chris Stewart has introduced a bill that says, you know what, for the special set of weapons that exist in the National Firearms Act, machine guns, grenades, uh, mortars, artillery, stuff like that, we're going to keep on letting the Department of Justice, the FBI, and so on, they, they can use that. But, you know, Department of Education inspectors should not be carrying machine guns. Department of Agriculture folks don't necessarily need grenades. We do not have to militarize every single federal agency. FB, tactical teams are good. I'm really glad the FBI has one, and it's a good that, that many agencies have them, but they need to be reserved for use in the special occasions, such as hostage situations and other true emergencies for which they were created and not uh, just used because they happen to be around and there are by nature, active, energetic guys who get recruited to that and too often end up going on uh, search warrant service where it's not appropriate uh, for them, them to be doing so. Thank you very much. Okay, we're gonna open it up and take your questions now. I think I'll exercise the prerogative of the moderator to ask the first question. Um, Shai Calvo, would you please just elaborate a little bit more on the reform efforts that you undertook in the aftermath of your raid? I mean, there was a fundamental lack of information, as I recall. Yes, it, it was quite a process of just getting basic information from the police because the lack of transparency in, in actions really is a, is 
it's not just difficult for the victims of incidents, but it's actually a disservice to public policy because the, the whole black box mentality, I think it's really unfortunate. We should know what's going on. It took me a year to get a police report for my incident to give you a sense. And that was through the lawsuit, not through public information. The, the, in addition to the law that we passed, which really was a transparency law, um, it, you know, and I think actually it's worth noting, it, all it did is it said, not how you can behave differently, but rather after the fact, periodically, if you deploy SWAT teams, you have to disclose to the public and to civilian authorities where you did it, why, what's your authorization, and what are the results. It was really a data set. And sadly, it was adamantly opposed by law enforcement. That's the Fraternal Orders of Police, Chiefs of Police, Sheriff's Agencies. We were able to get it through in 09, basically due to the, my story and many others of people who came forward, but it passed. Um, Unfortunately, it was, they did attach a five-year sunset and is now no longer the law. It just, it just expired um, in legislation to extend it past the Senate but couldn't get through the House. It may come back, although the uh, state of Utah has actually passed similar legislation. It's actually beefed it up. The legis in addition to the legislation, um, in our reforms itself, dealing with Prince George's County law enforcement, that's both the agency of the sheriff and, and the police department, we were able to put in place some meaningful reforms, but really what we were doing is implementing requirements associated with best practices and training. Um, the three things that we did is we mandated they develop a risk classification process where they would use data and in investigations to decide whether or not to deploy a SWAT team. Um, and that was a big deal because they were doing it um, so so casually before. Secondly, they really didn't understand the Fourth Amendment. Um, the, the whole idea of when you could enter, how you could enter, that was a real problem. And there was no training or understanding at the officer level regarding that. So we imposed um, new standards for that and training to correspond with it. And the, the personal one that may not have been the biggest one, but it's actually it's it's the personal one is there were no standards for the non-lethal treatment of animals. There was nothing. There was no training. There was nothing for any police officer in what is a 2,000 officer agency. So we did mandate that they put in standards for that and actually uh, associated training with it. You said that the police organizations opposed the reform. They, they, they could not have said that the Fourth Amendment's not important, so they had to have <laughs> advanced another rationale in opposition. What was that? It was basically the bureaucratic argument. It's too much work. And which, I mean, in being that the system was set up, uh, to, to, you know, in place, really the administration of the system wasn't that much work, but that was the argument they used, but it was a straw man. They just didn't want to do it anymore. They didn't like the transparency and they didn't like the criticism that came out every time there was another report because a lot of these agencies, I mean, were little agencies. They, they weren't doing it very often. So the training associated with those agencies, there were a lot of questions and it would also, every time there was a negative incident, they'd be reciting actual data. But the truth is outside of Maryland, um, there's really no data on how much how how often SWAT teams are used, to what effect. I, I know, uh, uh, you know, the, the Tactical Officer Association is working on it, and I've been part of an advisory group on that, and I really applaud that, but it really shouldn't be something that comes nationally. I think if you're going to send these people into the field at a basic level, you should, you should know about it. Okay, questions? Yes, sir. Wait, wait for the microphone to arrive. That reminds me, uh, so that everybody can hear your question, and please Hi, identify I'm, yourself and any affiliation that you might have. Hi, I'm Peter Nye. I'm a lawyer who practices, among other things, civil rights, including police brutality. Um, it seems to me that some of the obvious minus, one obvious minus of electing sheriffs is that some of their work is confidential, so they're not allowed to campaign on the basis of it. And another obvious minus, which, which one of you mentioned earlier, is that that might lead to too much sort of trying to 
enforce the publicly, uh, you know, enforce laws in ways that make headlines as opposed to really trying to improve the community. So what do you, what do you think are the pluses and minuses of electing sheriffs as opposed to having them appointed? Dave, I well, think you were making that point. We've, we've had elected sheriffs in this, uh, England used to have elected sheriffs and then the Kings ruined it as they do so many things. Um, <laughs> But we, we got that back in the United States, and we have well over two centuries of experience in, in almost every state uh, of electing sheriffs. The only, there's only a very few that you don't. Alaska, which doesn't have counties, doesn't have elected sheriffs. Connecticut used to have elected sheriffs, but got rid of that. Uh, but the with with very few other exceptions, we have 200 years of experience on, on electing sheriffs, and I think it, it's been a constructive uh, thing overall. Certainly, certainly doesn't lead to per, to perfection, uh, but it's it's a uh, it is a better system that, on the whole, has kept the sheriffs closer to the people and kept us more in the model of policing of uh, policing by consent and recognizing that that the, the sheriffs are an organic and their deputies are an organic part of the community and not something set apart from or or above it. Do you want to say anything? I actually, and I think it depends. I don't. Th I, I don't think a categorical in this uh, this instance is appropriate. Um, the the sheriff whose SWAT team came through my door was elected, but how many people paid attention to that election? Is a down ballot race? No one did. He was the he was the union um, president who got he was a corporal who got elected sheriff. He was a figurehead, quite frankly, and he, you know, uh, he first thing he did was give everyone everyone in the agency a promotion which also meant a raise. I mean, he was a union president, he became, you know, so we also have a police department in Prince George's. And so the answer is, I think in rural communities where the sheriff and people are, are more knowledgeable about the decision, that makes sense. But in a place where you have a police department and a county government interacting where the sheriff is really a, an officer of the court, it may not be appropriate. I really think you have to make that decision based on the circumstances on the ground. Yes, in the back. Um, I'm Ashley Westerman, a reporter with Capital News Service, and I just had a, a, a quick question uh, for either Mr. Lynch or Mr. Copel um, about uh, racial profiling and sort of who you all think should be uh, in charge of helping maybe combat that uh, in, in law enforcement agencies. Uh, Senator Ben Cardin has introduced the End of, uh, End of Racial Profiling Act uh, and, uh, you know, prohibits any law enforcement, local, federal, et cetera, in engaging in racial profiling and has, you know, adequate policies and things of that nature. But who do you think should, should be responsible for that? The, the federal government, as this act suggests, or maybe the local level? And um, finally, I mean, do you think that something like this has any chance of, of getting anywhere in Congress? Thank you. Well, th that actually is something that is in the Constitution that, that it's okay for the federal government to do. Section 5 of the 14th Amendment specifically gives Congress the power to enact appropriate legislation to enact, to enforce the rest of the 14th Amendment, including the Equal Protection Clause of Section 1. So it's that 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 that's always a good starting point when Congress has the power to enact the bill that it, it's considering. Uh, I, I don't know the the details of that, and certainly our our broad constitutional scheme is that you have the federal government, the state government, each to help you when one is oppressing you or going too far, then you 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 go to the other, and that that's our great genius of of the entire system. 
Uh, at the same time, I'd say federal mandates have often uh, been things that look great when you're designing them in a committee room in Washington and don't work out that well in application uh, across the board. Uh, and so, so that, that is, is certainly a high risk. And the fact that the federal government might be taking action on this is not any reason for state and local officials to be any less vigilant on that uh, as well, because it's, it's ultimately a constitutional principle that we're all supposed to obey. Neil Franklin. Thank you. Um, I'm Neil Franklin, uh, Executive Director for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and I just have two very quick questions. One's for uh, Mr. Lomax, uh, which is, do you have any recommendations for uh, reformation of the 1033 program as far as how it's administered, and if so, what are those recommendations? And the other question I have for everyone is, you know, the terrorism and the active shooter scenarios is relatively new when you're talking about the militarization of our police departments, which really began back in the early 1980s. Um, do you have any, do any of you have any uh, uh, comments regarding the correlation of the militarization of our police departments in the drug war? And what recommendations would you have for that correlation, whether it's changing those policies of our drug war, um, or again, tied to militarization. So, um, Mark, I think you'll start with 1033. Yes. Um, we have been in um, communication with Senate, I mean, Congressman Johnson's office out of Georgia, and they are proposing a, a bill uh, that should be going to committee next week. Uh, over the last several months, even before Ferguson happened, that uh, we have been in communication with them. Uh, looking at the bill and making, you know, some adjustments and recommendations from our perspective. Um, also with the Senate um, this past week, we are tasked with working with them also and looking at the bill from the Senate perspective. And also the White House is doing their review. We have been invited to participate in, in that discussion also. One of the, 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 the basic things out of all of it is that we, um, it's necessary for proper training proper training and decision-making. But that's one of the things that we're trying to get across through the House, through the Senate, through the White House, that training needs to be part of that process. Whether there's going to be restrictions or, or whatever, you know, that's up to the respective House and the Senate and the White House to look at. As far as our concern is that the 1033 program has provided a lot of, of benefits and a lot of equipment outside of the, the things that we have seen in the news uh, from the weaponry to the armored vehicles. That's only maybe 5% of what's been transferred over the 20 plus years. The vast majority of the equipment, it's been used for search and rescue, it's been file cabinets and computers and so forth. So um, we are on constantly ongoing conversations from the House to Senate and the White House to look at the 1033 holistically and to determine you know, what should be um, recommended and suggested from our perspective. Okay, Dave, did you want to say something about the terrorism question? Sure. And, well, and also you mentioned active, uh, A, to answer your question, that if, if the drug war has been the massive engine in militarization, and it, it's, I, I don't think that there can be any historical dispute on that. 
it, it's great, by the way, when when stuff that was provided as part of a drug war program ends up getting used for for search and rescue or, or other uh, good stuff. This country is not anywhere close to saying we're going to legalize all drugs, but certainly re-legalizing marijuana or shifting enforcement into a more of a civil process of, of you know, like like we deal with alcohol. Uh, in a, in a regulatory sense, rather than uh, flashbang grenade sense, uh, would would certainly would be good and, and would would reduce, uh, I think, violence overall. Active shooters, as I said, tactical teams can do lots of important things in hostage situations. is is one of the is, is probably the core of, of the core uh, for which they're well trained and and important, and their specialization is really helpful. Active shooters is not that kind of situation. What we've seen is active shooter, Columbine, the police were surrounding the building within minutes, and the rat was actually an, a, 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 one officer on the scene, another came by on a motorcycle. Very quickly, they didn't go into the building because they were waiting for the SWAT team to get there and gear up, and you know, and that, that took quite a long time. In Norway, the heinous murders there, you had this guy executing people on an island and the local police were there and they're no but we're not we you know it'd be too dangerous for us to go over there we're going to wait for the SWAT team to fly in from Oslo well the on that Norwegian island the minute an an officer showed up and pointed a gun at the bad guy he surrendered with active shooters police training in the United States has changed drastically said because of the the terrible error that was made at Columbine and now the scenario was, if you have an active shooter, look, you, you can be the parking uh, police officer and, you know, carrying a 22 or whatever. Go in, confront the active shooters immediately. And the fact is the vast majority of active shooters are cowards and crumble very quickly under opposition. And even the ones who are don't that are, are ready for a shootout with the, with the police uh, it's better that they are engaged by the police and pinned down immediately so they're busy uh, dodging bullets rather than just executing people at, at leisure. And I, I think it's it's a, a testament to the, the good side of American law enforcement that that lesson about what went wrong at Columbine mm -hmm. was, was is now part of, of all good law enforcement training in this country. Okay, Shai, you had a comment? Yeah, I'm going to try to, I, there's a lot there, so I'm going to try to um, answer both questions together, because I mean, I, I think the war on drugs is, as I said, significantly distorted public policy and law enforcement for the last uh, 30 plus years. I don't think there's any question about that either. Um, and I think a lot of these federal programs get kind of grouped into these things because how they're intended and how they're used, it blurs. So I think that's a challenge. I mean, I would say there are purposes for special tactical units. And I think that's something that we need to understand. But I think there are too many of them. In addition to too many deployments, there are just too many of them. Little agencies that have no business with these things need to not have them. And I'm worried that federal policy is encouraging them. And so we need to make sure that where they exist, they are truly trained to the hilt, that they know what they're doing, that, that and I think a lot of places, you know, you, maybe it needs to be a county, not these little municipal ones. Um, but I think, I, I think the, 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 con 
the answer to the war on you know to drugs, I mean, I think the war on drugs is a failure, but there needs to be a drug policy in this country. I think it needs to be much more of a mental health concern. But the progress we've made in recent years, we're giving states some fl flexibility to try different things. Decriminalization in Maryland just passed. I think is a huge step forward because we don't have an answer to it. Um, and we need to see how different things play out. But even if we end the war on drugs, even if we stand down there, the mindset that the war on drugs has taken hold in the police agencies that's not going to be removed, you know, outside of it, a generation at least. And so it's going to take time to sort of get the mindset to change, because I think in a lot of places that cancer has, has set. Since the drug war has come up, uh, Dave, and you're from Colorado, one of the states that has legalized marijuana, would you t tell us whether or not law enforcement organizations were neutral on that referendum or whether they lobbied against that change in the law? Because sometimes we're told... You know, the police take the position, we enforce the law, it's the policymakers that make it. Uh, were they neutral in that fight? I, I think it would, it would vary. And, uh, you know, you certainly had some elected sheriffs who were very vocal opponents of the re-legalization of marijuana. Others who, who, didn't, who, who didn't get involved uh, in that topic. What do you mean re-legalization? -legal, re well, it was legal in this country until the 1930s. You know, we... Uh, you and you in 1880 uh, could grow all the marijuana you wanted on your land and, and smoke it up, and uh, yet the country did not turn into a bunch of sex perverts listening to jazz uh, like the Reefer Madness uh, movie warned. You know, I, I mean, I think it's important to note that, that the that people can put in their bodies whatever food. You know, the norm in this country was that you could drink large sodas. Put a lot of salt on your food, whatever, you know, or, you know, for that matter, you know, take drink Coca-Cola back in the days when it contained cocaine uh, or chew coca leaves, uh, which would be a lot better than the refined stuff. Um, but that, we had that in this country for a very long time, and the country seemed to do pretty well. The, the drug war on the Harrison Narcotics Act dates to 1911, the Marijuana Tax Act to 1938. So the, that's the exception to our broader historical experience. Okay. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, my name is Sarah Turperville, and I'm the criminal justice counsel at the Constitution Project. And I was curious if any of um, our panelists have thought about some of the First Amendment implications that have come up, um, particularly in light of what we witnessed in Ferguson with um, protesters on the streets and whether or not those rights are infringed when, you know, folks are out on the street and there's tanks and, you know, armored vehicles and, and whatever else out there. And, and, and we've talked a lot about the Fourth Amendment, Fifth <clears throat> Amendment, Article One, but, but what about this First Amendment implication? Hmm. I, I, I... I've certainly thought about it. Uh, you know, I, for me, the lesson of Ferguson is not that an unarmed um, young man was 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 killed for reasons we don't fully understand the details. It's the absolute lack of faith in the community that the police will get to justice on their own. Um, and so, once you reach the point where you know you're, you're sort of the no justice, no peace sort of point. Um, you know, failure is there and just to manage them, it's a question of managing it. I think they managed it terribly, but um, we've seen, you know, so there's First Amendment questions, 
um, that you know what are the appropriate ways for peaceful protests, but that doesn't authorize riot. And a lot of the people who were getting to that level weren't even from Ferguson. So it is a tricky subject. And one, you know, it's sort of, I feel for the, you know, the, the, the officials that have to figure that out. I think how Ferguson police handled it was terrible, but that doesn't mean that finding the right answer is easy because I think what we're dealing with militarization, I think it's worth mentioning is that the absolute lack of faith it has engendered in certain communities, especially high needs communities who need police the most is a, is the real problem. And because those areas are already unsafe, but if they don't feel the police are their friend, if they're only seeing them, you know, Landover, Maryland, which is a low-income area, is the number one zip code for SWAT teams in Maryland, you know, appropriately the home of FedEx Field. Um, but it's, it's, you know, those communities are seeing this type of behavior more often, and they lose faith and lose trust. And so when we're seeing the expression, the First Amendment expression, it's, you know, the peaceful protesting is one thing, but, you know, looting and rioting, you know, it's it's a difficult thing. And at that point, it's, I guess it really it's about managing failure because you're you're past the point of a, of a good solution. I've heard you speak in other forums where you've talked about, you know, you, you touched on it in your talk here about dealing with your police commander and some of the circumstances in which I think you've had to let an officer or two go because of misconduct. And... Can you talk a little bit about about that? Because like the officers during the protests in Ferguson, like the officer was caught on tape, like pointing a weapon at the protesters. Mm -hmm. And then because it was on tape, I think the hammer came down and he was relieved of duty for a while. But it's not an easy thing, as you've talked about. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, actually, I would make the case that certainly in Maryland, um, the, the police officers are probably the most protected class of citizens. Um, you know, if you shoot someone in Maryland, the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, which is a state law, um, permits you 15 days before you have to file a statement, which I can't imagine police would ever accept that standard for, for, for suspects of, of, of crimes that are committed. You mean they've uh, been involved in a shooting and they don't have to sit down with like internal affairs investigators to explain correct. their side of the That's story? That's state law, 15 days. Um, and legislation to reduce it to three has failed with the vocal opposition of the FOP. So, and, and quite frankly, firing an officer in the, in the state of Maryland because of that, because of the process that's governed by state law, again, lobbied for by interest groups, makes it incredibly difficult. That said, though, you know, it, there are things that sort of, sort of make people ineligible to be police officers. And it's, it's a difficult thing. I mean, it really is a difficult thing because on one level, you know, mistakes happen. And good training can get rid of some of that. But, you know, sometimes the, the mistake that happens could be the thing that turns a, an officer who's learning into a seasoned veteran. It's, it's, it's so much more complicated than people appreciate. And that's not to say that some people shouldn't be fired. It doesn't say that some police officers should, should, shouldn't be arrested. But it says that you know, the due process matters. And the problem is that the due process in so many cases, in so many localities, is just broken. It's, it's the likelihood that the police will find the right outcome is, even if it's true, people don't believe it. And that is, a, that is the problem because we let in this country police investigate themselves. The Internal Affairs Division process, I mean, I, I, I would love to see numbers on how often does it turn up you know, positive. Um, and the truth is, even when it does, often what you find, and I found this in my case, I'll say this about the officers, every one of them that was involved in my house, they 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 weren't they weren't always well trained, but they did what the policy said they were supposed to do, 
The problem wasn't the guy. I met them, each one across from a deposition table. They weren't bad people. Some of them shouldn't have been in law enforcement, but they weren't bad people. So it's so easy to focus on the individual, but you have to look about how they got there. And that process is complicated like any employer-employee relationship, but I will say some of these laws that give special protections really make it more difficult. Okay. I am afraid we have run out of time, but everybody here is invited to the reception that we'll be having on the second floor. Right now we're on the lower level. There's the first floor. The reception is going to be on the second floor. But please thank all of our panelists for a good discussion.